0: The management of individuals with or at risk of cancer has created a new subspecialty in the practice of medicine called clinical cancer genomics. Welcome to Reach MD Radio on XM160 for a special program, Focus on Cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining me to discuss the subspecialty of cancer genomics is Dr. William Fowkes, Associate Professor in the Departments of Human Genetics, Medicine, and Oncology at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Dr. Fox, welcome to ReachMD. Hi there. So what is this field of cancer genomics, and how long has it been around?
1: Well, uh, that's a good question. I think it depends how you, more or less how you define it, because I think clinically, there isn't really a specific specialty called genomics yet. I think it would be called cancer genetics, perhaps, or clinical cancer genetics. But genomics is a slight... It has a slightly different meaning, but it has, it has an allied relationship to genetics. If I can answer a question you didn't ask me, what is clinical cancer genetics, that really is, is taking care of people who are at risk of, a high risk of developing a cancer or who have developed a cancer and are from a family where there may be an inherited susceptibility to that cancer. So this is, it, it's part of genetics and it's part of oncology. So it's like a subspecialty of, of both, if you like.
0: And how long have we had this cancer clinical genetics subspecialty? First
1: clinics started out really in the United Kingdom, probably in the 1970s and 80s when they were running particularly polyposis clinics, people who had polyposis. These were one of the first clinics that started out at St. Mark's Hospital in London. And I think that was the starting point for a lot of this work. Henry Lynch, of course, in Omaha, Nebraska, has been running his own service since the 60s. So there have been a number of pioneers in this area, but it's only really in the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years that this has really taken off, and only in the last 10 years or so that we have a lot of cancer genetic counselors. And, for example, in the province of Ontario in, in Canada, if you exclude prenatal diagnosis, counseling for breast and ovarian cancer is uh, occupies most of the majority of the time of all of the genetic counselors in that province.
0: So it's clearly a specialty that's increasing. And the people that fill this subspecialty or this specialty, are they physicians, nurses, and what are their roles in working in this subspecialty?
1: Right, that's a good question. I I think one of the problems, in a way, is to do with the way, certainly in the U.S., the way that medical genetics is structured is that medical genetics physicians have tended not to play as big a role in cancer genetics as they might have done you know counselors on the other hand have taken a very big role in their sort of enrollments going up because they don't need to work with medical genetic physicians they can work with, with, with oncologists they work in cancer centers they can work in clinics they don't need to be associated with a medical geneticist so the medical genetic community is involved in cancer genetics but the oncology community is also involved and some of the leading players in clinical cancer genetics, are actually not geneticists; they're actually oncologists. So it's a sort of a mixed bag of training at the moment.
0: And how do patients get an appointment with, or learn about the fact that somebody has this subspecialty training? Is it at diagnosis? Is it before diagnosis? Is it with the family? How does it, the patient get involved?
1: Well, we would hope they would happen before diagnosis, because after all, the the main goal you could argue is prevention not treatment, to prevent cancer from happening in a person rather than waiting until it happens. So you'd like to have patients referred before they've been diagnosed but in order to find out what the diagnosis really is in a family you often need an affected person, i.e. someone who's had cancer as well. So you need alertness at several levels. You need family doctors to be aware of this so the family doctors should take a family history from patients. It's not very difficult, it takes a few minutes and yet it's incredibly revealing and contains most information anybody will ever need. If nobody in your family's ever had cancer or ever had cancer below the age of 70, it's very, very unlikely that your family carries a strongly acting dominant gene that has a big implication for your health. So I think, Family doctors have an important role. Nurses have an important role because they also could detect, you know, the patients may talk more to them than to the doctors, and they could pick up on this and chart it in the in the notes and then be picked up by the attending staff. Attending staff are important because they see the patients with cancer sometimes in the clinic and will think, does this happen to anyone else in your family? And then they would refer to a clinical cancer specialist, such as myself, or colleagues like me who work in either oncology or in genetics, and then we would start the process working with genetic counselors, working with other, profession, other health professionals, to try to tease out what are the real issues here at hand. There's a lot of counseling involved. There can be psychosocial counseling. There's also some discussion about risk profiling, for example, what risk do this person really have, modeling of their risk, and so on, and also discussions possibly about specific treatments that the patient may be suitable for.
0: So give us an example of the kinds of treatments. So let's say you discover in my family a predisposition to some early cancer and you're counseling us. What would you be advising me particularly to be doing or my children particularly to be doing?
1: Well, I think management obviously can be – for every disease can be split into three parts – prevention, early diagnosis, and treatment. So assuming that, assuming that you don't need treatment right now, we'd focus on prevention, early diagnosis. So for example, if you had a strong family history of colon cancer, we'd be talking to you about the possibility of modifying your diet. Although the data there aren't terribly strong, clearly we'd like to make sure that you, your weight isn't too much and that you're eating a, a good diet. Uh, so these would be the prevention aspects. At the moment, there aren't really very good drugs for preventing colon cancer, but These are probably coming down the road in the future. We'd also talk about early diagnosis. Probably the mainstay would be colonoscopy and fecal occult bloods and other tests of that type. So we'd be talking to you about making sure these are done regularly, trying to find out who really is at risk. Because, for example, although you may have a strong family history of colon cancer, you personally may not be at high risk because there might be a gene, for example. Say your father had colon cancer at 35 and your sister had endometrial cancer at 40. Your father and your sister may well have this gene, uh, one of these so-called Lynch syndrome genes. I mentioned Henry Lynch earlier. So it's named after him, Henry Lynch. So Lynch syndrome genes. But you may not have it because it's a 50-50 chance. So uh, that could be very helpful to you because you wouldn't need screening. It would be a waste of your time and waste of money for you to have intensive screening for disease which you're not susceptible to. So I think that's our, one of our important roles is to find out actually what is your risk level and how are you going to handle that risk.
0: So let's follow up on that last little bit. So Let's say I did have this history with my dad and my sister. What would you do now to assess whether I have that Lynch gene or I don't have that Lynch gene?
1: Well, I'd start with someone who actually has had cancer. So I'd start with your father, if he's still living, or your sister. And I'd ask you, would you be prepared to contact them to come and see us? Because really, we'd like to start with someone who actually has the disease, because they're more likely to have the genetic change than you, who don't have the disease, which makes sense. So... If you were agreeable, you would contact your sister or your father, and one or other or both of them would then come in and see us in our clinic. We would then talk to them about this situation, with or without you, and discuss the possibility of testing, first of all, their tumor that they've had for certain proteins, the Lynch syndrome proteins, if you like, that might be absent in their tumor. And if those proteins are absent, then we could then follow it up with a blood test to try and. Find out exactly what was the genetic change that was causing those proteins to be abnormal. If we find that genetic change, we could offer that test to you. Then you have it or you don't have it. If you have it, you need to be followed up in the kind of way I was discussing earlier. If you don't, well then, you don't. So uh, hopefully, it can be a fairly straightforward process. Sometimes it's tricky. Sometimes you don't know why it happens. Sometimes you don't have any clues and, and it isn't Lynch syndrome and so on. You have to taken a more more empirical view of things. But the aim certainly is to try to find the mutation so that you can better guide you with regard to preventive and early
0: diagnostic actions. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. And with us is Dr. William Folks, Associate Professor in the Departments of Human Genetics, Medicine, and Oncology at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. We're discussing the new subspecialty of cancer genetics. So let's continue on that path that we were talking about before. If my dad and my sister aren't available, are you still going to be able to do some counseling and some testing for me?
1: Yeah, possibly. I mean, it depends on a number of factors. But first of all, if your father and your sister were not available, it depends what you mean by that. If you mean that they were deceased, then in certain jurisdictions, you might have the ability to get hold of their tissue from the hospital where they were treated, and actually do the same test that would have been done had they been alive. So that might give us a clue as to which gene was involved, and then we could offer that test to you, even if we couldn't offer it to your deceased relatives. If, on the other hand, they were simply not prepared to be part of the process for whatever reason then we could do one of two things. We could either test you anyway and hope for the best, but that's a bit of a shot in the dark because a negative test doesn't say very much. All it says is, well, you don't have these changes, but how do we know we're looking in the right place? The second thing we could do is say, okay, well, look, never mind. We did our best. You did your best. But what we suggest is now is that you follow, as it were, the average guidelines as though you were at risk. Not that you definitely are at risk, But let's assume that you might be, so we'd say offer you colonoscopies every two years rather than more frequently than that. So it it ends up being perhaps a bit prosaic in the end, what you actually do. But that's only because you're not able to be more precise about the risk.
0: So our listening audience is a lot of physicians. How do they get involved in this? Is this something that they're already automatically doing, or is this something that you want to promote to physician population or the nursing population to get patients more involved in this process?
1: Well, I think taking a family history is the first step. I mean, if you take a family history from all the patients that you see, then this kind of story should emerge, the one that we've just been discussing. So... People can be involved by simply taking doing simple things in fact. And as long as they know who to refer to once they've identified people with strong family histories, then in a sense their job is done. If they don't have time to take a family history, then obviously it's going to limit the ability for us to find people at risk early on. I mean the other way to go would be to go through would be to not involve at the physicians at all, but simply say, for example, get the tumor registries or statewide registries to write to people and tell people that they're at risk. But there's some issues with that. As you can imagine that people might not want to know this. They may have some objections to being contacted out of the blue. But as the ability to do something about things changes, then likely the people will accept such information is likely to go up. I mean, if I can do nothing about it, maybe I shouldn't know. But if I told you that you had a gene that increased your risk of disease X by fivefold and that we had a drug that might actually treat it better than someone who didn't have that genetic change, you'd probably be very interested to know that. And so you might not find it so difficult to accept the information that you're at high risk because there's something that could be done. And you might be grateful, you might be, to hear about this. So I think it depends what we can offer people as to how they're going to accept this kind of information. But as I mentioned, it can come through the physicians or it could come more directly. And I think that's a policy decision, really.
0: Now let's talk about some of the implications for research. So now that we're doing all of this screening family histories and referrals, are the patients that are coming to see you, do they get enrolled in some kind of a longitudinal study to see how many of them actually do develop cancer and whether the preventive things worked?
1: Yeah, many centres are doing such research to try to try to, to tease out these questions: whether, whether exactly whether preventive interventions work, what the risk factors for these diseases are, what modifying factors there are. Because clearly, not everybody with a gene, quote unquote, for breast cancer gets breast cancer. I mean, many do, but many don't also probably the majority do, but many don't. And why does that happen? Is it purely chance or are there other factors at play? So yes, many, many centers are doing research collaboratively on their own, nationally, internationally. There's huge studies going on all around the world, in fact, to look at these factors.
0: And when you see these patients, do you get genetic information that might help with targeting new drugs to these diseases and other things? Are you also using the information that way?
1: I think that's, incre- that's, that's the new frontier, I think, of this, because historically genetics has been a bit of a basement subject or a Cinderella subject that people haven't been very interested in it because there's nothing you could do. Whereas now we're finding that because your inherited component, if you like, the genes that we carry could influence our treatment, it seems now, then obviously knowing about it beforehand, as I was alluding to earlier, could actually be information you want to know. So, for example people with mutations in BRCA1 or 2, the breast cancer genes, may be more sensitive to certain chemotherapy drugs than other people, and they may be less sensitive than other people to to other drugs. So this is emerging research, and nothing's completely certain yet. But there is some suggestion, for example, that platinum salts might be particularly effective in BRCA1, 2 gene carriers who develop breast and certainly ovarian cancer, and that might be something that could change their treatment. And I don't think, as I say, this is quite ready yet, But I'm pretty sure that either platinum or drugs like that will be used specifically for those who have mutations. So knowing about your genetic status won't just be a question of, aha, that's why it happened. Oh, and by the way, your children are at risk. But this is going to affect your own treatment, maybe your own chance of surviving. So that would put a very different spin on the whole way in which genetics was seen, it seems to me anyway.
0: I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. William Fowkes. We've been discussing the subspecialty of cancer genetics. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and you've been listening to a special program, Focus on Cancer, on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD is online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.